everyone. I just want to give a short introduction to our latest podcast. Um, this is an interview with Pastor Jason Miller from South Bend City Church, uh, a fast-growing church plant in uh, the state of Indiana in America. And also uh, we have David Armstrong from Redeemer Central Church in Belfast also contributing a little bit in this episode. I think one of what I find interesting about this, I found this to be one of our uh, you know, really most interesting podcasts we've recorded. And I think when people say that, <laughs> people always say that about their latest podcast. Um, but really, this was a really good conversation, really interesting. At times, some kind of real fascinating theology comes through, but also just stuff that's really relevant for today. I think what's interesting is that sometimes the perception is that the big kind of growing megachurches in America um, have a certain kind of theological bent. And then if you're kind of emphasizing things like peace, reconciliation, you tend to be in a smaller church, whereas Jason's church is really growing and it's successful and it's meeting the needs of people. Um, and it's also emphasizing these these amazing themes of peace and reconciliation. And I think one of the things that we want to get across in our podcast series is what does it look like for people of faith um, to embody a lifestyle and a theology that leads to peacemaking. And we need that more than ever. And so I really hope that you enjoy this episode. Uh, it's, I think it's really, really fascinating, really good. I'm really thankful to have met Jason and to have, you know, just a continued friendship uh, with Dave uh, in Belfast. So enjoy the episode. We want to also thank the Community Relations Council, who's really made this second season of podcast possible. And we want to thank all of you who are part of our Patreon supporters uh, around the world who um, really help us to continue the wider project of Guardians of the Flame moving forward. So thanks, and hope you enjoy the podcast. All right, welcome everyone to the Guardians of the Flame podcast, and uh, it's really good to have Jason Miller here. Yeah, um, hey, thanks. And uh, um, we're also joined by um, David Armstrong. So uh, Yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, David leads Redeemer Central Church in Belfast. Is that yep. how you describe yourself? Yeah, yep, that's right. I'm a, I lead the team that leads Redeemer, so I'm right. a team leader. Yeah. Leader of leaders over there. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't wear clerical robes or anything. I don't. I don't. Unfortunately, I'm usually kicking around in scruffy clothes and yeah. And uh, and Jason, you're from South Bend, Indiana, yes, which sir. a lot of people <coughs> listening to this, if you're from Northern Ireland, wouldn't have necessarily heard until possibly recently when a a guy called with a funny name <laughs> Pete Buttigieg, Pete Buttigieg, yeah, uh, is is running for president, and uh, he's um, openly gay, mayor of a a town of about 100,000. That's, that's right, yeah. So, um, yeah, so tell us a bit about South Bend, yeah. Indiana, the, where yeah. Pete Buttigieg comes from and where you're from. And Yeah, South Bend, uh, it's a, you might call it sort of a Midwestern Rust Belt city in some ways. Um, so it thrived through the 1960s, especially because of the auto industry, big factory in town called Studebaker. 63, 64, that all shuts down like pretty much overnight. Uh, 30,000 people leave the city over the next few years. Um, Notre Dame's there, you know, big kind of wealthy established university. So that created a bit of a backstop, meaning there was always going to be something sort of holding South Bend up. And that was, that's been there. But, uh, last, uh, seven or eight years, we've seen, um, the real mark of a, a turnaround, which is encouraging. 
There's a lot of factors in play. Uh, and now it, one of the things that's happening is our mayor is running for president. Yeah. And so a lot of people who haven't heard of or cared about South Bend are starting to hear about it. And he's kind of all over. Last night he was on Fox News for an hour town hall. He was, mm. SNL did a sketch making fun of him on that's Saturday. Right. So you know you've made it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So that's what's going on in South Bend. And you've met him, have you? Yeah. In a small town, uh, Pete does a clergy roundtable uh-huh. pretty frequently. So we've had some meetings together and... Um, couple of conversations here and there. Oh, wait. So if he became president, then you would potentially, uh, you know, be a, be close to the Oval Office. I highly you know? doubt it. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah he's well. a, he's a, he's a faithful Episcopalian, which means my, my brothers at St. James Episcopal down the street oh, yeah. have the proper, proper claim on oh, pastoral right. relationship to Pete. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, and then what brings you here, Jason? Yeah. And maybe, David, you can... Well, maybe, David, why don't you just tell... Why did you bring Jason here? How did you meet him? And uh... Yeah, um, so about two years ago, I think, I uh, I was listening to a podcast by, by a friend of ours now, a mutual friend, uh, Luke Norsworthy. He has a podcast called Newsworthy with Northworthy, and Jason was a guest on there. And I was really struck by just some of the conversation, particularly what Jason was sharing about this new church pro- project that he had... It began um, in South Bend and and his own personal vocation and calling to that and um, trying to find new ways and expressions of faith. And so I was like thinking, wow, that sounds similar to what um, myself and my team and and our community in, in Belfast are trying to do. So I just shot him an email and like uh, Jason's super kind and quick to get back. And he's like, love, love what you're doing there. It sounds great. Let's connect. And then I think a couple of months later, um, Jason was organizing a little retreat with fellow friends and leaders in, in particularly the United States. So we like hit up a, an Airbnb in on the Lake in Ross, uh, Lake Michigan. Yeah, yeah. Lake Michigan. Yeah. And um, he just invited me out. We'd never, we'd never met. We think we Skyped once. And uh, so we hung out for a few days and uh, I got to know uh, Jason and some of his friends, saw the community they're doing there. And we just established a friendship, a connection, and we've kept in touch ever since. And um, uh, so, yeah, Jason's been out to Belfast now tw- uh, twice uh, through the, the connection with us. I think the thir- three times all in. And um, he's just a, an inspiring guy, and we love what he's doing. And um, mm. yeah, he's he's inputted into our community uh, already, even in this recent trip. Mm. That's great. So, Jason, tell um, us a bit about um, tell us a bit about your church, and then I'd love to hear as we hear about the context of where you are and, and what you're doing. Uh, some of those kind of you've got these four mantras that yeah. kind of define your church. So, how did your church get started, and, and what does it look like? Yeah. Uh, long story short, I guess. Um, a calling got stirred up inside me back in 2010 to be a part of a, a new church in a city somewhere. And it took from 2010 to like 2015 to realize that the context for that calling was my own city. Uh, I spent a long time thinking it was probably someplace else. Um, and in that way, I'm probably like a lot of people in South Bend who maybe thought about leaving. And then for one reason or another, lately have decided to stay. Um, so, so that's a big piece. And South Bend's an important part of the context because um, it's a it's a beautiful city that I think has had a lot of stories told about her and within her that aren't really true of her, meaning stories of decline and um, emptiness when I don't think that's actually true of South Bend, but it's easy to think that of that city. Um, I was also on a theological journey, um, kind of had my own version of what a lot of people are talking about in the last few years of maybe the mode of Christian faith that you were handed growing up at one point you woke up and it just didn't seem to hold water. And so you kind of had to work out what you were going to do with that. 
um, how you're going to read the Bible, how you're going to think about God or church or whatever. So that, that some of that's gone on for me. Um, so, uh, anyway, the, the, the timing really became clear for me in 2015 that it was right to, to jump into this. So we didn't have a plan. We like, we really didn't. Um, we had an impulse, we had a sense of calling and I think we had a bit of a picture of what it should be like. And that's these four mantras. Mm. Um, and then we've been kind of working it out since. So is it helpful to maybe hit the mantras real quick? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Well, before we do yeah. that, maybe even going back into kind of what you like talked about there, uh, like many people, I would say, particularly in the, um, well, over here in Northern Ireland and in, in Western Europe and North America, there's this uh, kind of the post-evangelical phenomenon, you know, like people... Um, coming out the other end of maybe a lifetime of enculturation in a kind of an evangelical mindset, which has brought them to faith. It's growing them. It's been very good in many ways, but they've realized its shortcomings. And so then, then it becomes this kind of deconstruction. In my life, there was a, a this dark night of the soul period of doubt, confusion, and I was able to hold on to faith. Um, but some people can't. So you've obviously had a, a similar kind of experience. So what was that like? How did, what set you on a path yeah. to deconstruction? And, and yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, the it's funny. We just this kind of came up just yesterday at, at Redeemer as I was, as I was talking. Um, I, so I went to a Christian college um, for undergrad and uh, showed up um, hungry for God and for faith and for a lot of things, and then woke up one day and like quite literally just. I woke up one day and the first thought I had was, I don't think I believe in God. It's kind of out of nowhere, but I think that was actually the, the accumulated sort of conclusion of a lot of underground work that had been happening to me. And like one, like the joke, right. Is that one of the most likely predictors that somebody will lose a version of faith is if they start reading the Bible. (laughs) So I was actually like reading the Bible cover to cover and I'm like, wait a minute, this, this book, I don't know if it works the, the way I was told that it works. Um, so that was a big piece in the puzzle. And anyway, so I, the good news is I was in a place in college where um, I was able to find some really good mentors, some theology professors and some friends who were really gracious to me and allowed me to ask all my questions. And sort of along the way, I feel like they kept whispering to me saying, there's still room for you here. Like these questions don't put you at distance from the tradition. They're actually in the tradition. Um, it, it, not in so many words, right? But they found their ways of telling me that. Um, so that was really helpful. I also was on a really, um, really intensely painful mental health journey in college, um, confronting some trauma from childhood that led to a really dark, dark depression that lasted like four and a half years, spent 10 days in a hospital, um, just grieving, um, some trauma that I didn't know what to do with. Um, so that was a really important layer. Um, yeah. And then I had the chance to go to grad school in a place that, um, I went to Notre Dame for grad school, so it was, it was a more diverse environment theologically, and it was a place that loves the Bible, but does have a way of reading it that feels a little different than some of the ways of reading it that I'd been given growing up. And I, I found that way of reading it to be really life-giving, and it felt to me like this way of reading this book, like comfortable with historical critical readings, but also looking beyond the historical critical to, to the um, sort of a canonical reading. Like there, Okay, great. So we can, we can recognize that like Genesis one, um, you know, is a sort of an editorial sort of retelling of other creation stories. It's a great historical critical observation, but then why would they have done that and kind of pushing beyond that to why God would have used that retelling? Um, 
and like found a lot of life in that. And so then I think back to the new church, I, I realized I was given access to um, some mentors and some learning spaces that helped me find faith on the other side of some of that deconstruction that a lot of my friends didn't have access to. And so I think one of the motivating factors for our church was like, could we be a community where you don't have to go to grad school or seminary to be in a room with people who are asking some of these questions and, and mm-hmm. digging in? Yeah, which is, I think, is the exciting kind of challenge for, for many of us who've, who've been asking a lot of those questions. And um, could, could we see um, a, a much broader kind of uh, movement of, of people following Jesus in a way that is creative and has imagination, takes the Bible very seriously, but doesn't read it as a flat kind of two-dimensional yeah, uh, kind of book, yeah. you know, it doesn't read Genesis 1 as a historical kind of story about how God created the earth th- 6,000 years right. ago, or whatever it yeah. was, you know, yeah. um, and the dinosaurs and the humans are walking around the Garden of Eden together, <laughs> right, you know, right, right. Um, yeah. and uh, so um, I think that's, we're, you know, I think for the evangelical construct is so it's so helpful for a child to kind of, but it becomes so unhelpful when you move beyond that in a way, you know, like it's so helpful to go, Oh God made the earth. That's really good. And then he flooded it and killed everyone and gave us a rainbow to remind us (laughs) that he won't do that again. Well, that doesn't think, you know, and, and, uh, you know, and it all took seven days, that creation, you know, and it's all, it's all very simple and you can tell it and, kind of children's stories and it can it just can fit nicely but it really starts to unwind Mm -hmm. when you become when you start to really think why did he do that what what you know and and then if you question that whole even narrative what genesis one is not a historical retelling of actual historical facts it's poetry and you know and and i think and therefore i think for like you're describing it it sends people into a tailspin of, of, yeah, of some depression, losing your faith. What am I going to do? What's my life worth? You know, Mm -hmm. um, so that that can be a a big deal, but you've been able to kind of emerge out the other end. Yeah. Still loving the Bible. Yeah. I I honestly think I love it more today than ever. I certainly read it a little differently in some ways, but I I don't think that's like a lower view. And I, you know, I'm not the only one to say this, right? A lot of people are saying that like a literal reading isn't a high reading. No, I think no. it's actually a pretty low reading. Um, yeah. yeah, and yeah. I like I, I think pe- people are afraid that maybe to embrace historical critical reading is um, will like diminish its impact. But like like one example I'll sometimes tell is uh, I was in uh, studying the prophets at, at Notre Dame in grad school, and so I had this really brilliant professor from Duke. She um, she's incredible, but it was a very historical critical reading. And so a little example would be that whereas I might have grown up in an environment that would have needed Isaiah to have written all of Isaiah, she, you know, sort of embraced the academic consensus that Isaiah probably wrote chapters one through 39, and then maybe a second generation disciple wrote 40 through maybe whatever, due to her own tritio Isaiah. Um, So anyway, so we're in the classroom one day and she's just offering the literary textual evidence for that sort of historical critical conclusion. And then she says, so if this is true, she says, then Isaiah 40 is the first words of the text written in exile. 
So, so pre-critical reading would say that Isaiah wrote all this before they went into exile. But if you, if you relocate chapter 40 through 55 in exile, then chapter 40 is written on the eve of their liberation. Mm. And she began to kind of paint the, the circumstance of that liberation. And she said, you know, it's great, you're in exile. And your liberation means you get to come home. She said, the problem is it's a 900-mile journey by foot. And she said, when you get home, you're returning to a decimated homeland and a desecrated temple. And once you're home, you're not even home because then you have to start rebuilding. And she said, it's in that context that God gives Isaiah the words that says, young man will walk and grow weary and run and grow faint, but those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. And the whole time she was talking about the long journey home, I was um, struck by the face of a person I love who was um, deep in an addiction journey. And uh, I prayed often for um, his recovery and his, if you will, his return. And I had known for a long time that the day that he got sober, there would still be a long walk home. Yeah. And I was in my prophet's class, just started weeping. Wow. And Isaiah 40 had always been like cute and inspiring to me, but it was once she sort of placed it in a context that you really only have access to if you're willing to embrace a historical critical reading of it. Yeah. That it just, like, the, you know, the words leapt off the page and grabbed my heart and built my faith in a way that I was really desperate for. And so that's just like a moment there where I, I thought this is an example where like this, this approach isn't like a threat to faith. In, in many ways, I think it, it, it lets the Bible loose on us again, mm. you know, and lets it speak again. So I was really grateful for that. Yeah. And begins with, you know, in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. You know, yeah. you're in exile. Yeah. This is the, this is the way to, this yeah. is the place to start moving, you know? Um, yeah. That's really, really good. Um, well, let's talk about your church. I think one of the reasons I'm, really happy to kind of spend time with you really it's been really fruitful good kind of conversation is i suppose this whole guardians of the flame project is um well it started with documentary first of all looking at northern ireland and we hope will be a series of films looking at where uh, well where religion in the world can be toxic and damaging and trying to highlight and profile people whose faith really liberates their communities, liberates themselves, and heals themselves and heals others. Um, and so then the podcast, we're just trying to interview people who, who are on that journey of trying to um, disseminate a, a faith that is healing and beautiful and brings life. And uh, it really seems to be what you've been after in South Bend. Uh, so... Um, South Bend, you would describe it as kind of as, e as economically divided kind of town. There are these kind of div divisions. Yeah. And into that environment, you've kind of sought to build a church that will speak life into all of those realities. And and from it, then you've got these kind of four mantras. So do you want to yeah, tell, us sure. start telling us about that? And Yeah, yeah. So a little bit of, real quick on the backdrop, right? So South Bend is, I think, roughly 40% non-white. Um, it's it's pretty, the, the economic life in South Bend still seems to be pretty depressed, but then you do have Notre Dame there and there's a lot of wealth there. So the lines that are drawn in the city, um, off, often they're this sort of race and economics and education, they all kind of stack on top of each other a lot in South Bend. Um, so one of the things we dreamed of is like, could you be a church where a member of the Notre Dame community and a member of the homeless community sort of experience equal belonging and neither of them as a project and neither of them as a target, but somehow what's happening in this, in this community, it becomes a place of deep and, and real belonging for both of those people. They like belonging to each other, you know? Um, 
so yeah, we began thinking about what kind of church we needed to be. And um, I, I kind of hate the, the language of values because it just feels like those are the really abstract, impotent things that you put on the wall and forget about. And, but I like the idea of mantras because I think the, um, the word mantra assumes that you're saying it on a regular, that's, a mantra is a thing you say over and over again, right? And I think of a mantra as a portable prayer. Um, you know, it's short, but it, it, you kind of repeat it to yourself. So we developed four community mantras that um, were meant to be sort of how, how are we going to live our life as a community and how are we going to follow Jesus in South Bend in the year, you know, 2017, 2019. Um, so uh, we have four of them. Uh, one of them's a little uh, cheeky, um, but they're all kind of meant to describe that. First one is sushi, not fish stew, um, which is really just a way of talking about simplicity. Um, maybe the idea being that like, if, if I told you that I had, that the gospel is good and beautiful and I can't wait for you to taste its fruit. And you said, great, like, give it to me. And I went back in the metaphorical kitchen and I, you know, I prepped and prepped and prepped and I came back out and I like handed you a dish and it was fish stew. You might be like, where's the fish, right? Like, um, and it's not like to despair. I love a good stew. Like, none of these mantras is meant to like really denigrate the metaphor. But like the idea being like when I think of like really great sushi, I just think of the chef knows that he has a beautiful specimen. Um, she knows that the, the best thing she can do with this fruit from the sea is, is honor it and put it forward to you in its sort of most simple, elegant form. So sushi, not fish stew. That's kind of how we try to think about um, our life as a church. We think that you're going to have a, a higher likelihood of intentional simplicity if you remain clear on who you are and what you have and what you're here for. So we try to kind of keep those questions alive for us. Uh, second mantra um, is everyone an icon. And in some ways we would say, this is our answer to the question, who are you and what do you have and what are you here for? Um, so we take that from Genesis one, right? Um, when God creates uh, men and women in God's image. And we, we've, we've tried really hard to point out to our community that Genesis isn't the first time in ancient text suggested that a human being could bear the image of God. And in, so we'll put all the other examples in front of the community, whether it's, um, you know, the Egyptian Pharaoh Tutankhamun, his name literally means the living image of the God Amun. And so you're in a world back then where a lot of societies imagined that a human being could bear the image, but all the other examples only seem to assume that the king can bear the image, right? So like we would just argue that the, the revelatory thing in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 isn't that a human being could bear the image of God. That was already assumed. The revelatory thing is specifically the democratization of that image for everyone. That it, you know, it celebrates that dignity of every human being. Um, so everyone an icon for us is sort of central. First of all, it asserts the dignity of each person. So if you come to our church, we hope that you hear us celebrating your dignity. We hope that you don't feel like you're an object for conversion. We hope that you don't feel like we see you as somebody we need to fix. Um, we want to, uh, the baseline for us is if, if you walk into our community, I hope that you, I hope you know that we, we sense the, the, the honor and the weight of your life. Um, but that, but then, so there's that. And then secondly, though, like, if we're going to be honest, a lot of us need to confront the fact that though, like the, though my life is called, um, a sacred image, I certainly don't live my life all the time, uh, in a way that manifests the character of God. And the world that I've created, that I've laid my own hands on, doesn't look entirely like the world would look if God were acting God's life through me. And so there is this sort of um, invitation to ask Jesus, like, 
hey, if it's true that I, I'm a bearer of, of the divine image, but it's also true that in many ways that has been distorted or suppressed, like, could you lead me back toward its restoration and its full expression? And then the other sort of the third implication of that um, being that every other person you meet, obviously, right? So we're trying to then ask, okay, so it's easy to recognize maybe the image of God in someone that you love or you enjoy. Um, so we're just trying to ask where are the places and who are the people or the types of people or the tribes of people among whom we would each have the hardest time seeing that? And so can we move toward the other really proactively, right? So not only seeing that we are icon, that our friends, our neighbors are icons, but those people we don't necessarily like. Yeah, like, yeah, and like, and we would kind of, the word's multivalent, right? Because icon also, you know, an icon in religious practice is a sacred image that's meant to help you see the, the divine. And so we would argue that, that the other is actually the greatest icon for you, right? Because if you can learn to see, if you can learn to see God in, in the other, that's probably more formative and more powerful for you than learning to see God in your best friend. And the people that look like you, yeah, because yeah, then yeah. you're just returning yeah. the f- God, <laughs> you know, yeah, God yeah, made yeah. you in his image and you return the favor. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, that seems really helpful in a, when I look, you know, I, I, we live here in Ireland. Um, America seems to be an increasingly polarized yes. place. And I think, I think that kind of polarization is, is taking off around the world, not just obviously there are historic conflicts like here, the British Irish one or whatever, but the certainly the kind of the culture war thing is just, it's kind of spreading, spreading. You see in South America, um, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, um, here in, in Western Europe and Northern Ireland, these kind of uh, culture war polemical kind of issues are kind of creating dividing lines and people are thinking we need to draw lines in the sand. And into that, I can imagine a church and, and a discipleship that is imploring people to see people who are different from them as an icon of the divine is a very healthy healing thing. Uh, yeah, I hope so. I, th- I think we've, we've known from the beginning that we could put the mantra on the wall. That's great. But we're going we're gonna to like put our money where our mouth is a little bit. So by having the mantra on the wall, we've felt compelled then to, um, to lead into areas that like even I'll admit, like feel precarious. Um, when we talk about racial justice at our church, for some, it can feel like we're being divisive, right? Um, when we talk about the inclusion of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, it can feel like we're being divisive. Um, but we've, we've just been mindful that like the mantra on the wall is great. But if, if we don't do that at some cost to ourselves, then it's pretty, it's pretty lifeless. Mm. Can you think of an example of where you would, um, you know, if, even for someone listening, you know, if, if, if you're generally a fairly open-minded person, you know, how do you find the image of God in people that think so differently from you? You know, I mean, yeah. Uh, can you give an example of where you've seen that in your own life kind of, or uh, kind of? I mean, I think narrative empathy is really important. Mm. Um, the example for me right now, I'll just, I don't talk about this on Sundays a lot because I do think um, you need to be really thoughtful about how you do this right now. Um, but like, I have a hard time understanding Trump voters. I really do, you know? And yet some of the people in my life who I respect deeply, not just as people, but as people of faith, um, are Trump voters. And so I think uh, if I were to ask myself, where do I have a, a harder time? 
my my mandate is probably to go listen to their story and to not demonize that that choice or at least make room for the story behind it uh yeah that, that that'd be like my example for me right yeah so narrative empathy that's a brilliant way of putting it like the the ability to put yourself in the shoes why would somebody wanting to why would someone be wanting to support this particular political cause or yep. agenda and the fact that the the first level answer to that question might be a list of reasons but the second level answer to that question is a story right that generated those reasons right and i so somebody can tell me it's about um economic policies great why, why do you care about economic policies and why do you see them through the lens that you do oh you're a business owner oh when the affordable care act was enacted you you did actually it cost your company massive amounts of money to comply with that act and oh it's empirically true that you provided better health care for your employees before the ACA. Okay, now 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 I'm starting to understand there's a, there's a real story there, you know? And um, yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's a line that um, I heard somewhere, um, I didn't make it up, I wish I did, it would have been cool, but um, I use it in the documentary. Um, our identities are what uh, make us different, our stories are what make us the same. I love that line, I remember that, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Because, I mean, I think stories do, you know, we've all got a story of a relative who's sick or someone who's lost their job. Um, uh, you know, I think um, th there is that stories enable us to find empathy, you know. And sadly, I think, it, I guess it's the kind of the echo chamber of social media and the way our modern world works is we don't have time to hear the stories of each other. All we have time for is... Um, is hearing their little Facebook status or their little Instagram or Twitter, which kind of feed sets us off on a, well, I disagree, I hate what you're saying. And so we're not listening, there's no listening, it's just we're talking in, you know, 140 characters or whatever it is. Yeah. And not able to hear the deeper kind of nuances of our stories. Don't you even think, sometimes I even wonder if, if we've been taught that, um, that to, e to even listen to the story of, your enemy or your other or whatever that like even that is somehow a betrayal of your tribe or your um the side that you're representing i think sometimes even just the act of making space for their story you, you might feel like you're betraying something mm. which yeah yeah i'm not yeah. gonna get very far with that yeah no totally yeah, yeah if yeah if you want to hear them yeah i remember somebody saying why would you even talk to that person yeah you know, like exactly a, yeah. you know there's a fear to even talk i mean that was our political process here to this day is perpetually gridlocked by the inability of opposing political sides to even be seen to be in the same room together. You know, they, it's well documented that the two major divided parties can't, won't even shake hands in public, you know, because mm -hmm. one would say, well, the other party are all just a bunch of terrorists, you know, so we literally can't, if, if I shake their hand, if I'm seen to shake their hand, I will lose voters, you know, people will leave us and go to this other party. So they have to keep this kind of distance. Um, yeah. What are your, the other, you've, so there's yeah. those two mantras, what are the other two in your church? Yeah, the other two, one is uh, practices, not performances. Mm. We, we kind of mean that in a couple of ways, right? I mean, sort of a basic gospel of grace, like your, your faith doesn't have to be a performance. There's nothing to prove, nothing to earn. Um, uh, also, though, for a church, like we, we're trying to create a, sort of a more of a practiced space than a performance space. So that um, hopefully shapes how we gather and what we do when we gather. Um, 
And then lastly, uh, fields, not factories. Okay. And this sort of comes out of um, the sense that a lot of how we think about church and like discipleship and formation has sort of been, it has imbibed an industrial sort of imagination without even maybe knowing it. And so when we design um, systems of formation, you know, seven steps, seven programs to take you from, I don't know, reprobate to saint or whatever, um, that I think a lot of the, the books that are being written and the voices that maybe would prescribe those kind of systems, I'm sure if you were to ask them, they wouldn't say, yeah, the soul works like a factory. But it does, it just felt like a lot of the paradigms that there's just some radical differences between an industrial imagination and an ecological imagination. Like in an industrial imagination, um, control is like a really high value, but in an ecological imagination, you, 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 like you're gonna be disabused of any myth of control. When you're in the field, like the weather's not yours, right? Um, so yeah, so um, there's a lot of differences there. F- uh, factories don't have seasons, but fields do. Um, so as we, and we, we're trying to say this kind of applies to all of life, not just what we do as a church, but yeah, fields, not factories, which is ironic because my church meets in an old factory. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So just talking about um, ecological imagination, I, I love that phrase. Um, you've got a couple of great phrases, uh, Jason. David, you're in Belfast, um, a church that's about 10 years old. Yep. Um, yep. How does, what do you think that looks like for you in the Belfast context or in the Northern Irish context, eco- ecological imagination, having a f- um, fields, not factories? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because we don't, um, probably don't express um, our values or the ways that the ways that we think about things is mantras it's not as not as cool as that but interestingly like kicking around our community from really the early days we've had this this um effectively it is a mantra it's like a saying which is um we want to build walls not gardens Mm. build walls not gardens and um build gardens not walls yeah, I'm sorry. Let's get that the right way around. That's really, like, really, really important. Really interesting. Like Bill yeah. Wallace <laughs> talking about Trump voters. It's really yeah. Yeah. Well, and Belfast doesn't know anything of, of problematic walls. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. What, that's we exactly need more walls. Yeah, we, good. We, so we Redeemer is a really progressive church. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So okay. um, yeah, build gardens, not walls. Exactly. Okay. Belfast doesn't doesn't need any more walls um, at all. Uh, yeah. No. So build, build gardens, not walls, and it's. Um, it's really, I think it's captured some of what, what Jason's been sharing already and that um, following the way of Jesus um, to me and to us in Redeemer seems to be um, less about um, um, dividing walls and dividing lines, um, particularly in the context of Belfast, which is, as we've already, you know, talked about, doesn't doesn't need any more walls. Walls that are um, described as being walls of peace are actually walls that, that you know, Johnny, are built right through the middle of communities and keep them separated. And um, where the gospel is actually um, practiced um, faithfully in the way of Jesus, um, we see life blooming. Um, um, there's a there's a Psalm, Psalm 84 is a really important Psalm for us in Redeemer. Um, we walk through the Valley of Baca and make it a place of springs. Um, and so where the people of Jesus are walking, where the people of God are walking, um, barren land should um, flourish and become um, a place of life. And um, just that call even to, to, to build houses, to, to, to plant gardens is, is also like this sign, I suppose, of demonstration, a practice of commitment to them um, that we're that we're not just tourists in a place, 
but we're like residents. Mm -hmm. And um, if we were tourists, we wouldn't really hang up pictures on our walls. We wouldn't really build gardens. We would just um, pass through the place transiently. But I think people who make a home somewhere, who like incarnate into a place in time, um, you tend to find yourself um, planting, putting down roots. Um, my wife and I actually this weekend, we've just been doing that very thing. We have this small little piece of um, land in Belfast and we call it like a, a, a yard, but like Jason calls it a patio. It is a patio. <laughs> we call it a patio. Five by five, just at the back of our terrace house. Um, but we've been doing a little bit of yarding and we've been um, importing some soil and like planting some raised raised beds and um, it's a sign of it's a sign of life and I think the gospel um, calls us um, uh, to use that as sort of this powerful metaphor of of life that the gospel wants to bring life not division it doesn't want to separate us into us and them but it wants to it wants us to see the other wants us to pull us together and wants us to practice this way which is the way of love really ultimately. yeah and it does that challenges uh, the worldview that I think many kind of in that kind of evangelical kind of fold we grew up with sometimes this this world is not our home we're just passing through yeah you know so you don't want to plant a garden if you're just passing through exactly, you don't yeah. want to um you know you're you're living for your eternal destiny not for now this um and i think also uh what you said earlier jason just looking at isaiah 40 like i mean that was actually a really a very profound kind of insight of the sense that f the faith journey is not a step, a set of magic steps that kind of necessarily is, you just walk through easily and life is a big cakewalk, you know, but it's, it can be a 900 mile journey on foot, you know, yeah. uh, you can get blisters, you can get hurt, you can pull muscles, you can end up beaten up by the side of the road, you know, um, but you, but it's about perseverance. I think of Brennan Manning had a, a phrase he used: "Passion is not a um, passion is not an emotion; it's a steely determination." Um, hmm. uh, and that sense of the life of faith not being an emotional high, but a, a kind of a, a you know a set of disciplines of perseverance of steely determined walking uh, eugene peterson calling it a long obedience in the same direction yes. you know um yeah that's really cool uh david and then th so this weekend jason you've been talking there about s particularly that idea of ecological imagination what 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 do you kind of pull out of that in some ways yeah 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 so yeah we got to spend some time together with some redeemer leaders and kind of kick that around together um like one big piece i think for us is um really like pressing into the seasonal life. Um, I think, I know for me, like faith, work, all of it um, sort of can have the assumptions of just endless output is like the sign that you're doing it right. So it's, it's not rocket science, but I think uh, it can lead us into a pretty deep reflection to, to give yourself permission to be uh, in a winter or a spring or a summer in different parts of your life. And then even as communities, um, like even as a church, we've, been in a lot of springtime, I think we're kind of a young new church, right? So we've had a lot of springtime energy and, um, I'm trying to remind myself if, if, if South Bend city church is a living, breathing organism, it probably won't always be springtime for us as a community. And just asking myself right now, like we, we good with that, right? You know, there might be some fallow seasons and if it's a living, breathing thing, that wouldn't be a problem. That'd probably be the way it should go. So yeah. What do you think, Dave? 
Yeah, well, the, the the whole yeah the whole reflection on the seasons has been really helpful for us. Even the for it to be articulated to us and our leaders this weekend has been really helpful um, because I mean particularly something that Jason said um, on Saturday to sort of captured like sometimes what we feel in church, which um, there's always this call for um, more, more, more. Like it's always harvest, like harvest, 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 harvest. When actually. Um, Life is really not not like that. It, it's lived in these these rhythms and trying to figure out how to live in, in a sustainable rhythm um, feels really close to, I think, what Jesus um, wants us to do. And um, uh, but that's difficult, obviously, you know, because there's always a temptation to always want to be in that particular season when you're not in it. But for us, um, I think, you know, faithfulness looks like paying attention to that. And, and even just this idea of being a follower of Jesus or a disciple of Jesus, when you re-articulate that as actually being fully human, fully alive, sometimes um, perhaps even in um, in the church, we can think that it's a, like a, some kind of subcategory of human to be a disciple. But like Jesus is actually calling us to, to full humanity. He's calling us into full flourishing, and that means we got we sh- we need to pay attention to like you know how we're made and our psychology and our welfare and what we eat and how we live um, and the seasons and I think um, there's a lot to learn even from the natural world and and how we can learn to do that and I suppose as Jason has been teaching us this weekend um, it's maybe why Jesus used an awful lot of agricultural metaphors in his teachings um, because there's something to learn there and I mean we haven't we haven't figured any of this out you know we're we're just trying to trying to move in that direction with, with all of this um, we're, we're a young church too but um, it's been helpful for us to think in these ways yeah um, did we get to the fourth mentor yeah, uh, practice. So sushi icon practices fields. Okay. Yeah. There you go. So we we got. Um, so um, I interviewed my old um, friend uh, Pete Rollins. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he's on uh, one of the earlier editions of this podcast. Uh, and you had him come along to your church at the kind of early stages. Yes. <laughs> and you survived. <laughs> we, yeah, we did. You, you've yeah. actually grown. You know, Pete should put that in his book, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pete Rollins' Church Growth Manual. Church Growth, growth, growth Manual, you know, Church Growth uh, Expert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so h- how on earth did you, you know, get something positive out of that guy? You know? <laughs> yeah, no, so no. a couple of things. Um, first of all, I, I, I think a lot of us have found a lot of Pete's work to be really helpful, especially in helping us think, about the ways that even belief can become idolatrous? I think that's a really valid uh, question. And I know in my own life, um, when I first encountered Pete's work, it really helped me think through that. Um, also, uh, you know, you and I were talking over lunch, one of our sort of secret mantras at our church is South and City Church, a great place to lose your faith, which we don't mean flippantly, um, but there's at least two ways we, we do mean it. Um, a, if, if your faith is of a mode or if, if what you call your faith is leading you to break the world rather than put it back together, whether it's patriarchal or misogynistic or whether your faith has been sort of weaponized against the other or whether your faith has been politicized in a way that's hurting things, in all those ways, we, we are rooting for you to lose that version of faith. Um, but secondly, knowing that, that it's, it's like probably this, in the same way that the seasons are natural and it's not good to try to avoid them, I think probably seasons of really robust belief and then seasons where that sort of slips through your fingers and you wake up one day and you say, I don't know if I believe in God. I think that's, it's probably part of most human journeys. And I think 
one thing Peter has been doing for the church has been making room for that. And so we wanted to bring him out to just say, we're going to normalize that here in the community. We're going to say that that's a part of the journey. And um, so we just, early on, it was important for us, I think, to say, you, you, you need to know a little bit of what we're aiming for as a community if you want to jump into this thing. And I thought I'd bring Peter out and if he, maybe he'll scare away some people mm. <laughs> and maybe yeah, that's yeah. okay, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he's, that whole kind of, um, well, his mantra, I've, I've heard him quoting Meister Eckhart for years, you know, uh, God rid me of God, you know, um, in the sense of, you know, you're, you've said your church is a great place to lose your faith. You know, it's that same kind of, it's a great place to lose these idolatrous images of a God that maybe is created in your own image or a God that is very, doesn't look very much like Jesus at all, you know? Um, and, and I think there is something really beautiful about that. I know, um, yeah, a Jesus-looking God and a Jesus-looking kingdom was not necessarily what I grew up with. I mean, I, I grew up with in, a, in a fairly healthy environment, but I would say so many people who grew up in, in solidly kind of evangelical churches, um, there's so much good there uh, in a lot mm. of ways, um, but sometimes our image of God didn't always look like Jesus, you know? Mm. Uh, we kind of had this we essentially worshiped a couple of different gods, you know, rather than a trinity, you know, we worshiped kind of two or three different gods, you know, yeah. there was a nice guy, good cop, bad cop, you know, and and it was our way of probably dealing with the problem of, of reading the Bible, you know, it was hard to read parts of the Bible where God is depicted as very angry and telling people to kill everyone you possibly can, except the animals, you know, <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, and the, and the Jesus, he's like, let the little children come to me, you know, um, uh, how do you put those two things together, you know? Um, and so I think the, the way around it is to essentially have kind of two gods that somehow coexist with each other. Um, whereas I think, you know what, Pete? Maybe and what you're what you're modeling in, in Indiana is is maybe a, a more faithful understanding of Jesus as the living Word of God, that inspired, infallible. You know what is it? Proxy says, um, "I believe in the infallible, perfect Word of God, and His name is Jesus." <laughs> yeah, you know, um, yeah, I like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, uh, so yeah. One of the other obviously strong emphases that, that I've been involved in, and that with this documentary is looking at areas of conflict, um, and that has been and also in a kind of a uh, something that's been part of your life a little bit over the last few years. Uh, tell us a little bit about that that passion for peacemaking and and and, and kind of somehow incorporating that into the life of, of of a church and being a pastor. Where did that come from, and what does it look like today? Yeah. Um. I'll, I'll try to say this with the requisite humility because it's a it's a whole area of human experience that um, I'm a real rookie in. Mm. Um, but 2010, uh, I went to Israel-Palestine for a learning experience, and I would call that trip one of a couple of times in my life where I became a Christian again, but in a, <laughs> kind of a new way. Yeah. So after four or five days uh, of encountering different stories from the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I, I was at a point of just... Um, utter defeat and I um, was way beyond the breaking point and the, it wasn't just that there's, there's violence there but it, it's that it's so absurd mm -hmm. you know it's um, watching video footage of a playground with 10 year old children playing being blanketed by tear gas canisters as a 
as a response to something that one 17 year old boy did throwing a rock the last the night before or it's um, meeting with a Israeli mother whose son who had no interest in serving in the Israeli Defense Force but did so because of the mandate there was picked off by a Palestinian sniper in cold blood I mean like you know how many of those stories can you hear in one day mm. and for us it was four or five days in and um, I was at a real kind of um, sort of an existential crisis like I is like if, if this is the world that we are creating, um, I'm not sure I can be a Christian in this kind of world because mm. what's the point? I'm not even sure I can be in this world. I mean, it was a really dark mm. moment for me. And um, the phrase I kept hearing in my head is like, there's no way this gets better. Mm. There's just no, when, when it's this deep, when the, when the history is, goes back that long, mm. when it's, when each side's story has so many points of evidence mm. about the wrongs that they have suffered. Mm. Like, how do you dig out of that hole, right? Um, so the phrase I kept hearing in my head is, there's no way this gets better. Mm. And then um, at that point in the trip where I was really, really desperate, we went to a small church in the West Bank, which is led by a priest named Abuna Shakur, Elias mm -hmm. Shakur. He's written a book called Blood Brothers that's really fantastic. And Shakur has a reputation for being a peacemaker. And um, when you walk into a church, it's a Melkite Catholic church. And so there's iconography all around the church. And um, every time I think about this moment on that trip, I feel kind of foolish about how simple it was. But it, it, the timing of it and the context of it changed my life. Um, so there's a bunch of different icons of different people in the church. And there's a particular icon of a brown-skinned man. And I'm just trying to make conversation. And so I ask Abuna Shakur, like, hey, who Who's that? And he looks at me and he says, that's Jesus. And of course, I hadn't, I hadn't seen brown-skinned Jesus before. I was used to Swedish Jesus. And so yeah, I, yeah. I felt really foolish, right? Wow. And Jesus was holding up a text and it was written in Arabic. And so I asked uh, Shakur what the text said. And he said, oh, that says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Mm. And it was, it was a real before and after moment in my life because um, when Jesus says, I'm the way, I had been taught to read that in a sort of, you know, gateway to afterlife reading. Um, but in that moment, because for three days I've been saying, there's no way this gets better. Um, it, I heard that Jesus saying, I'm the way, like in a different way. Um, and I, what I don't mean by that is that now we just need every Israeli and Palestinian to become a Christian and then it'll get better. I don't actually mean that at all, but I mean that the, what Jesus is interested in teaching me is, um, I mean, I don't, I don't know how like pod, I don't know your podcasting like framework here is like, if I'm with friends and we're having a pint and we're talking, we'll all talk about like, yeah, growing up, being a disciple of Jesus meant teach me how to not masturbate and not swear, right? And yeah, like yeah. be a generally good person. Yeah. And it had nothing to do with healing the world, hmm. you know. And then I was there, and all of a sudden, I, so I go back to my hotel room and I open my Bible, and again, like looking back, this feels so trite. The, the, the fact that it like changed my life, but like, so I opened my Bible because uh, Abuna Shakur's church, the steps of the church have the Beatitudes engraved on them. So I would go back to my hotel, I'm kind of excited. I have this fresh sense of like some possibility and I opened Matthew five. And this is my Bible that I had had for years and I preached out of it and did my devotional work out of it and all that. And most pages were all marked up, you know, a sign that I had well traversed those pages. And I turned to Matthew five and it was just pristine. Mm. Just, wow. just utterly untouched. Um, and I had I'd gone to college uh, at a place that had a lot of Anabaptist roots. And so it's like I had been given a lot of what I probably needed, but I hadn't heard it yet. Mm 
and then that trip in 2010 really broke me open. So from there, um, I feel like my faith sort of um, became new again. But it was it was different in the fact that now what I was asking Jesus wasn't just how do I become a personally good person or how do I know God, mm. but I was also asking Jesus um, how do we put things back together. Mm. And so now I keep finding myself drawn toward places, whether it's Belfast or um, other or Israel Palestine or places in the world where people are really digging into how we put things back together and how Jesus is offering resources for that. Mm. And I mean, that's what I love about being with Redeemer. My first time in Belfast, I saw this church, like you look one block in one direction and you see this, you know, massive Catholic church. You look one block in the other direction, you see this massive Protestant church. And I know that those faith identities have sort of been grafted onto a political conflict mm. in ways that aren't entirely fair or true. Yeah. But still you just feel like the, the way that even, um, so that's why I love coming here and being with Redeemer, just like the, the spirit and the learning that I get from that community. Mm. And it's um, while, why I, I, I'm trying to go other places. But, but also obviously the other important question for us is what, in what ways does South Bend need put back together? Mm. And if we're a community following Jesus, then what's that going to call for from us? Mm. Yeah, I'm, I know I was doing a seminar a couple of days ago um, to youth workers and trying to talk about peacemaking. <clears throat> and I don't think I'm a, a heroic peacemaker at all. I, th I think I'm just a, a guy who just does some stuff and hopes it works. And quite often it doesn't work. And, you know, you do other stuff and... Um, but but as I kind of shared my story, probably over the last twenty years of community work, of working in YWAM, of trying to work out my vocation, things that we've done, offering scholarships to people from areas of conflict, trips that we've taken cross community, trips to areas of conflict, you know, it started to kind of add up, and I realized I was creating quite a daunting bar for people which I wasn't meaning to do, but they were kind of going, wow, he's done these amazing things. He lived in the Shankill Road and the Falls Road, and he, you know. But for me, they were all just little steps you took at a moment in your life, and they were maybe difficult. It maybe demanded a little bit of courage, but really it was just step, quite easily attainable steps. But once you stick it into a one-hour seminar with a yeah, bunch of people, yeah. it looked like this crazy, you know, you have to become like Mother Teresa and <laughs> then you'll be a peacemaker. So we should all do that. And they're all like going, I can't do that, you know. And, and I realized I, I was, you know, I had actually created a, an unattainable kind of picture of what, what you should live like. Um, and I think... Uh, I suppose what you're kind of unpacking there is, is it much simpler is how do we heal the world, you know, and it is taking these little steps, which over a lifetime will end up looking quite amazing. I mean, isn't that, wouldn't that be incredible? You've got 700 people or whatever going along to your church. If they were all just taking small little steps, um, you know, that, what is that Mother Teresa quote? We've got it on our back gate here in our community uh, in Russ Trevor, um, we can no, we can do no great things, but small things with great love, you know. Um, and yeah, I guess we can take in an ecological imagination. We take small steps. We plant a seed. Yeah, yeah. It slowly starts to grow, and you know, after a time, we look back and we see this beautiful thing of beauty. Yes, yes. But it starts with a small step, you know. Yeah. And um, so, and I guess that's what we're all trying to encourage people to do these small steps which may take some bravery what do you think david in, in a belfast context would be some of the 
small steps that we could take or that you've taken or your community's taken? Yeah, I mean, I suppose like there's a simple practice I think that we maybe in the church don't execute enough, which is the practice of listening. Um, just to put yourself in a space where you can just listen to other people's stories, other people's perspectives, even if it's through the medium of something like you've created, Johnny, in a documentary, but I think even in physical time and place, like even just in getting in together, um, getting around the table, for example, have a sharing a meal with someone, hearing their story. Um, in simple ways, like I suppose there's a, we have um, some community groups uh, in our church and, and one of those groups is, is a group of creatives that are trying to learn about how to, you know, be artists and use their creativity to um, to speak truth into the world or to, to, to point toward beauty. And um, they've got a project at the moment that they're working on. I, I got to give a shout out to Stephen Wilson. He's a photographer in our community. He's got a community project called Same Difference, um, where he's like taking photographs of the inside of St. Patrick's on Donegal Street, the church, and we've been building a relationship with. Um, Eugene O'Neill there, the priest, and learning about his his parish, and um, um, instead of being ignorant toward um, uh, the Catholic community and and that part of the city, and we're trying to learn, um, and so we're actually hoping in the next number of months to to put on an exhibition with these photographs, where the inside of St Patrick's sanctuary is is displayed photographs of the inside of our church. And in our church sanctuary, the inside of our church sanctuary, we'll have photographs of the inside of St. Patrick's and under the umbrella of Same Difference. And Stephen's publishing a book uh, by the same name. And I suppose it's just w one small way through through art, through the medium of, of photography to, to begin to, I think, practice listening mm. um, instead of always speaking, but just to hear, um, to see, um, um, and I think that can play in a thousand different ways. Obviously, it's just a small example of that, but I think it it gets under the mm. under the skin a little bit when you when you when you begin to do that and you you make time for that mm. listening. Yeah. So you you're talking about listening. You were talking about narrative empathy before. I, I just uh, last week we hosted a, a screening of uh, the documentary in in your church, um, yeah. David and. Afterwards, we had a conversation between Beryl Quigley, whose yeah. husband was killed by the IRA. He was a assistant governor of the Mays Prison. And Liam McCluskey, who was a hunger striker, um, yep. had been part of the INLA, one of the offshoots of the IRA, part of the Republican movement. And as I talked to them both, years later, they sit on the same couch. They have deep affection for each other. Uh, there's forgiveness on both sides from uh, towards the other. Um, you know, Beryl's husband would have been the governor of the prison when Liam would have been on a hunger strike there. Um, and a couple of years later, he's shot. Um, but as I t talked to them both years later, and kind of how did you get to where you're at? And they're both happy, healthy people. Beryl is one of the kindest people I know. You know, there's not an ounce of, you don't detect really an ounce of bitterness. And as I talked... I realized that maybe empathy was maybe one of the single biggest ingredients to where they got. They, both of them at the time, at times in their life where they could have been so enraged. Liam McCluskey was in the Bloody Sunday March in Derry when shots start getting fired. He was at the back of the march. He had been at the front, but it got 
tear gassed and so I ended up at the back kind of right, well, regaining consciousness when bullets start firing and people yeah. start dying. Yeah. And that really set him off on the journey to joining the Republican movement. Mm. Um, uh, and yet both of them in, in a, their moments of deepest need asked the question. For Liam, he prayed the prayer of St. Francis, help me to understand as much as to be understood, you yeah. know? And he was like, I wonder what it would be like to be a young British soldier coming to Northern Ireland. Mm. And he's an Irish Catholic. He hated the British soldiers, but he began to think, what would it be like for them? Why, why would they be, you know? And, and that really helped him to go, maybe they're just young kids like me, you know? And Beryl in the same way uh, was wondering what, what it would be like for these guys, what, you know, and realizing ways in which they were victims too. And, it just seems like empathy is one of these seeds that we can sow into our lives or into our communities and it brings amazing f fruit, you know, and it's a, you know, that question, how do we heal the world that you're asking in South Bend, Jason, um, is a, is a beautiful, seems like a beautiful question to ask and it will lead us some great places. Um, do you, is there anything you want to kind of finish with uh, and we'll, wrap this podcast up and uh and uh, that kind of just your reflections on being here or, yeah you know your thoughts maybe the one um the one thought that was kind of rattling around for me as we were talking here was um that when jesus says blessed are the peacemakers because they'll be called children of god i used to think that was really sentimental and beautiful and then i met some bona fide peacemakers <laughs> and i think the way I, I hear that blessing today is um the reason Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, they'll be called children of God, is because he knows that once you really try to make peace, you're going to have to forsake your tribe, mm. which means you'll be uh, an orphan. Mm. Um, and I don't know that anybody gets to enter this work very meaningfully without some of that experience. Mm. And as you guys were talking earlier, you were talking about politicians that can't be seen meeting with each other mm. because it'll be seen by their tribe as a betrayal. Mm. And... Um, in that way, I, I think we can preach all day long about knowing you're a child of God, mm. and that'll be theoretical for us until we follow Jesus into the conflict in our, in our neighborhoods, in our world. And once you find out that it costs you a little bit of your, your family of origin, metaphorically speaking, mm -hmm. then you'll be out there in a wide open space and you might be a little bit alone, but then I think you'll find God mm. whispering to you about his parental care for you in a way that you were longing for. Mm. And then you'll look back on the tribe that you were afraid to leave behind and realize you were foolish for ever being afraid because mm. there's a way of being alive, which might be a little bit alone sometimes, but is found in that sense of belonging with God that he's promising mm. for anyone who goes into that work. Um, yeah, that, that was rattling around in my head mm. as we were talking. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. Well, there's, there's so many ways in which I could see that relevant to us, and um, so thanks for for being here. Uh, yeah, my pleasure. Uh, we're going to follow with interest the mm. this guy Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, uh, you yeah. Know, pay and see to him. Uh, South Bend, Indiana mayor, whether what comes of him. Uh, but I think uh, you know we're going to follow what you're doing as well in your church. And uh, thanks for coming to Northern Ireland and my pleasure, uh, man, really. investing in us. Um, uh, and we need voices like you. And uh, 
Yeah, thanks for being a great inspiration and example to us. Uh, well, I'm here to learn. So I, like, I'm really grateful yeah. for Redeemer and Dave and, and to you for, yeah. for having me. Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. Thanks, Jason, and thanks, David. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, Love Redeemer Central Church. You're doing some really good stuff up in Belfast. So Thank you. good to have people from the Big Smoke coming down here. So. <laughs> All right. Bring some fresh air once in a while. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye.